up to the book of Joshua as we continue our journey through that book and looking at uh, building a battle-tested faith. And now we're covering a big chunk of Scripture this morning, so we're going to get right into it, Joshua uh, chapters 3 and 4, but uh, before we do, let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time of preaching together. Father God, we're just so grateful for the opportunity to to bring our hearts together through prayers, through song, through the fellowship that we can enjoy. And now, uh, as we draw to you through your word, God, we pray that your spirit would be free to work in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, God, that you would encourage and strengthen as you will today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, <clears throat> if you weren't here, we had uh, we'd left the people of Israel camped on the eastern side of the Jordan, just outside the promised land, uh, actually several miles uh, away up in the, the meadow of acacia trees. But they were getting prepared uh, to cross the river to begin taking possession of the promised land. And, and Joshua gave the people three days to prepare, but he also used that time to send a couple of spies to check out the land, especially Jericho, which was the fortified, powerful city in that area. And the main story uh, last week focused on then Rahab and her faith and how she helped the spies accomplish their goals. And in the, in the end, the spies came back to Joshua. They were pumped up and excited, ready to go. And the report they gave, uh, found in the last verse of chapter 2, says they said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given, us all, the, given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. So this positive report that he brings. And then now that you know, sets the stage, brings us up to chapter 3. And we know that the original authors did not write, you know, the Bible with chapter and verse designation, stuff like that. That was added later just to make it easy for us to, to find things. And, and the story of the crossing of the Jordan actually begins in, at, at verse 1 of chapter 3 and goes through verse 12 of chapter 5. And, and I had originally intended as I began uh, to put the sermon together this week to cover that entire uh, episode in one sermon just so we would get the impact of the whole story in one shot but it was just too much stuff to cover in 30 minutes and so uh, we're, we're going to divide it up uh, as you read that story you'll, you'll easily see that there are three main points of emphasis throughout that and we're, we're going to look at the first two this week and and the third one uh, next week um, so the first point of emphasis that you would come across in this story is the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it's mentioned no less than 17 times in just chapters 3 and 4, and, and uh, you, you can tell it just plays this vital, important role. Now, no one knows exactly what the Ark uh, looked like, but since the Bible does describe it in, in, in detail, we can get a pretty good picture or representation of it. And if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, you have a pretty good idea of what it looks like. I mean, this here is how Steven Spielberg uh, depicted the Ark, and I, he did a fairly good job. Exodus 25 uh, gives the details. Uh, the Ark, uh, you can't really tell the, the size there, but it's a little over three feet long uh, and two and a half feet wide and the same two and a half feet high, a little over that. And it was made out of acacia wood, but overlaid with pure gold over the outside and the inside of the box. 
then it was supposed to have gold molding all the way around the edges, which you see there. And then on top, the lid was made of solid gold, not, not wood overlaid with gold, solid gold. In the middle was an area known as the mercy seat, an angel on either side. And the Bible says with their wings lifted up over the mercy seat. So, you know, if I was Steven Spielberg, I, I wouldn't have put the wings straight across like that. I would have had them sweeping up because... The Bible uses the word up. I don't know. So it's just how I would have done it. Uh, but again, that was the Ark of the Covenant. And, and uh, it, it was such, uh, to be such a holy, uh, um, uh, uh, I just lost the word I was going to say, it was to be so holy to the people that they weren't to touch it. Once it had been made, it was never to be touched by human hands again. And so that's why there's the, the rings on each leg and a pole could be slid into there and the priest then could lift the ark up by the pole to show its holiness and sacredness. It would never, uh, it, it would never be touched again. And, and the ark it plays a very prominent role in this particular episode. Uh, Joshua uh, first has this entire company of people, which we're talking over a million people uh, uh, at this time. Uh, they break camp and they move a few miles downstream and, and in, in, they were up uh, out of the way a ways, uh, uh, down towards the Jordan directly across from Jericho. Now, they wouldn't have been visible from Jericho because Jericho is still four miles up in the hill country on the other side of the Jordan. But now they would have been close enough that the people of Jericho would see the campfire smoke and all this kind of stuff. And they would have known. I mean, they already knew this great company of people was over there somewhere not too far. But now they would have known, ooh, they're getting close and a, a, an invasion is imminent. However, they probably didn't think it was as imminent as it was uh, because of some circumstances we're going to look at next Sunday. So you have to come back for that. But, but uh, uh, they, they were uh, in this new location by Joshua's order, but they weren't going to stay there long. Here's the instructions the people received starting in verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, And they commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it, the ark, a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So we've got this big distance. Now, why the distance? Well, I think it's actually more than the stated purpose there because he says so you can see the way by which you must go. But of course, if, if there was this great big uh, crowd of people and the, the ones at the front just followed right immediately behind the ark, everybody else would have been able to just follow in a row there. So I think there was more to it than just seeing that. By keeping that distance back, 2,000 cubits, that's over half a mile. Uh, this is a pretty, pretty uh, good distance. By being that far back, they're up the slopes of the riverbank, and they're going down to the river. Everybody would have been able to see what God was going to do. And, and I think, you know, when you're back that distance, ev everybody has now got a good view, not just the people in the front of the, uh, the, front of the line. And Joshua said that they were going to see something awesome, right? Um, um, the... Uh, uh, verse 5 says, then, uh, and that they would need to get ready for that. Um, verse 5 says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, now to consecrate yourself, that means to get ready spiritually. 
And it would include the idea of, of confessing sin, of, uh, as well as turning your heart to, to tuning your heart to God, to prepare to hear from Him and, and to obey Him and, and to see Him work. So that's what Joshua wanted them to be ready for what God was going to do tomorrow. And by the way, if you ever feel like, oh, I, you know, I don't know if I really get that much out of church or this type of thing, it might be a good idea to evaluate yourself in this area of consecration. I mean, ask yourself, am I preparing myself spiritually for church, to hear from God, to see what He wants to do? Now, maybe I need a, a time of confession or a time of reconnecting. Maybe just a time of tuning your heart to God through Scripture reading or prayer or listening to worship music. What do you do on Saturday night, on Sunday morning? to prepare yourself for what God wants to do. Joshua told the people to consecrate themselves because they were going to see awesome things. Verse 13 describes exactly what they were going to see. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from up above will stand in one heap. All right, so, so can, can you uh, imagine that? I mean, it, it's like God took his hand and made one big massive invisible dam. And all the waters below that dam just kind of trickled away, leaving this bare, rocky uh, riverbed, which in that desert heat would have dried out very quick for the people to cross on. And on the other side, the water flowing down would have just begun piling up like a big lake behind the dam, only since there was no physical dam, there would just be this huge wall of water getting bigger and bigger as every moment went by. I mean, that's pretty impressive stuff. And it was very similar to the crossing of the Red Sea, and God seems to have done that on purpose. Well, actually, you know, God does everything He does on purpose, but He tells us what His purpose was in this uh, particular instance. Verse 7 says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I see, this would have been a great... uh, confirmation and an assurance uh, and a confidence booster to, to Joshua that, yes, God, you really have set me up to lead this people for you. But it would also have been an inspiration to the people, right? I mean, they were used to following Moses. Forty-some years they had followed Moses, right? And, and, and seen God work incredible ways through Moses. And there might have been some of them kind of waffling a little bit. Oh, I don't know about this Joshua guy. I mean, is God really with him? Is, is he the type of leader that, that God wants? Well, this would have erased any doubts that anybody had. And, and God did that to confirm Joshua's place uh, as his selected leader. And so... Uh, they did that. Now Moses, he used his staff when it came to the Red Sea and the water parted on either side with that, but that staff was his own personal item, right? This time, God uses the ark, and the ark belongs to everybody. The ark belonged to all the people, and the ark symbolized many different things, actually, to, to, to these people, but most of all, number one, it symbolized God's presence. 
You know, when they were first at Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments, and then all the other uh, laws from God and the instructions on how to build the tabernacle and, and the ark and everything that was going to go in the tabernacle and all this kind of stuff, when that was all completed and done, then God said, and remember, this is like 40 years prior to that. Now he says, okay, it, it is time to head to the promised land. And they set out on the journey to go to the promised land. And, and as they would do that every single morning. The priest would come and pick up the ark to lead. And as they picked up that ark to lead, Moses would shout out, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And the ark would lead them on their journey towards the promised land. And then each night as they were getting ready to camp, the ark would come to its spot where it would be set down. And as it was being set down, Moses would again cry out, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And then they would build their camp all around the ark so that it was in the center. And thus it symbolized God's presence with them. God's presence leading them where they needed to go and God's presence in the midst of them where they were. His presence is what was symbolized by the ark. So now in this particular incident, on the verge of entering into the promised land, the people were again reminded, because you remember all the adults that were there at Mount Sinai when God gave the law and where the tabernacle and the ark was all cleansed, they're all dead. They all died in the wilderness for their unbelief. So this is a new generation coming up. And, and so now um, uh, this uh, was going to symbolize it again as they prepared to go in and, and conquer the promised land. It symbolized that God would be present with his people in all that they were doing and, and that his presence was visibly symbolized again in that ark. When they saw the ark uh, being carried into the water, they were supposed to picture God himself going before them and that the people would follow and obey and do what God had said. And according to verse 17, that's exactly what happened. It says, and the priests who carried the ark uh, of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, is the first emphasis. But the second comes right from this aspect. The second aspect, God had a very specific task that he wanted them to carry out as they crossed the Jordan. And I mean literally carry out, uh, as you'll see what they're doing here. Uh, this task had a very important purpose. It's described for us in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the son of Israel. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. So the text doesn't tell us this for sure, but I'm just guessing that Joshua picked 12 of the biggest, strongest guys he could to carry out this task. 
You know, he's he got these 12 tribes, and you look at him in, and oh, yeah, you dude, man, you got huge shoulders. You come in, you come, not you, you're a wimp. You, oh, you're moving over here. You know, he wanted big, burly guys to do this. Why? He, he, he wanted these large rocks so that they could build something that would stand out and, and be easily visible, something that would endure for generations and stand against the forces of nature, something that would uh, cause curiosity in future generations so that the question would be asked, what do these stones mean? And a little tiny pile of rocks, that wasn't going to do the job. They needed big stones. And so they got these guys to do that. Now, now God, uh, he had them do this because God's a pretty smart guy. And he knew that as humans, we have an incredible propensity to forget the love and goodness, and mighty acts of God on our behalf. And forgetfulness is one of the greatest enemies of faith. When we forget or neglect what God has done for us in the past, well, generally speaking then, our faith is going to be pretty weak when it comes to facing the hardships and the trials of the present. So Joshua commanded to set these stones up to become a lasting memorial and a visual aid in helping the people to remember. Now this this new camp it's on the western side of the Jordan River, this place that's going to be their new home. And, and this camp was going to be the home base for the conquest of the land. So that meant that the men of war would be coming back here frequently in between uh, each of the campaigns. And the wives and the mothers and the sisters and the children of all the fighting men would be there at that camp. And every time they would walk by or see this large mound of stones, they would remember what God had done, His mighty power in holding back the Jordan uh, River. And it would, once again, fill their thoughts and give them the assurance of God's power. And it wasn't just for them that would see it there, right? Uh, Look at verses 21 and 22. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, I mean, he's talking generations down the road, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents would pass this down. And you know, the next generation easily forgets the faith of their parents. And this gives every parent one more opportunity as they ask questions to instill in them the mighty things that God has done and to build up their faith. And it even went beyond that. Verse 24 says, that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The the stone pillar would give testimony to the existence and the power and the nature of the one true God. It would be a witness, or at least this opportunity to witness, that any person passing by and and wondering about it would be able to ask, and you would be able to tell them about the one true God. So I believe 
as we look at these first two emphases of the story, that, uh, that there's a couple of obvious application thoughts for us today. Now, first of all, think, think about the symbolism of the ark going before the people as they enter the Jordan rivers. Again, in their minds, that represented the fact that God was going before them. Well, doesn't that need to be the case for all of us as we embark on any plan or enterprise? And yet, the fact is we are so often guilty of doing the exact opposite, aren't we? We are guilty of making our plans and figuring out our uh, path and we're going to do our thing. And maybe every once in a while we stop and and remember, uh, oh, yeah, by the way, God, uh, please bless me in what I'm doing here. Shouldn't God be going before us? I mean, if you were going to get married, wouldn't you want God in that decision before you say, I do, rather than afterwards going, oh, yeah, by the way, God, please bless our marriage? If you're going to pick a college, start a business, enter a specific career, teach a Sunday school class, actually do anything you do, if you want success in that, then God must go before. One author I read this week put it this way, the only proper way to advance anywhere or at any time is by following God's lead. And that's because only God can bring success. Now, that's been our desire and part of the reason for the slowness of making decisions over the next steps and plans for us as a church. We don't want to get ahead of God in our plans just because, you know, we're all excited about you know, being debt-free. And our prayer as elders and, and, and the vision committee that had been meeting and is going to meet again was that God would lead and direct and that we would be faithful to follow whatever His plans are, whatever He would direct us to do. And, of course, we'd ask all of you to be praying that along with us as we continue to seek God in that area. God must go before. But we also don't want to lag behind, right? Because there came a certain point in time when those priests carrying that ark walked up out of the dry Jordan And the waters all came back down and began flowing again. And anybody that had lagged behind and was still on the eastern side of the Jordan would have been cut off from what God was doing. (laughs) And everybody that was over here would say, well, there's no way back now. We have to trust God and keep moving forward. And that's the attitude that God wants us to have. A second application, the, the ark also assured them that God's power was with them. I mean, when you see God pile up the waters of this, this, this huge river and you can cross on dry ground, I mean, you've witnessed something pretty incredible. And that assurance of His power would give you confidence with whatever you're going to face next. I mean, I have no doubt at all as, as those Israelis, especially the men of war and, and their wives, as they're marching across this dry riverbed, they were thinking, ah, you know what? If God can hold back the waters of this mighty river, He can hold back the attack of the Amorites or the Jebusites or the Perizzites or any of the others. If God can get us into the land this easy, certainly He, he can give us 
the land. And they would have that confidence. That's what remembering God's power does for you. So, when have you seen the power of God at work? May have been in your own life, life of a family member, a friend. Allow that moment of power to encourage you and assure you that God's same power is available to you in whatever you may have to face next. And, and remember, here's a, you set up the memorial stones. Why did he set them up? Because this is the type of thing God doesn't do very often, right? If he did it every other week, you wouldn't need reminder stones because he's doing it all the time. We have to remember those points of power. And if you are like most people, it probably feels like sometimes in this life that there's another crisis waiting behind the next bend because we live in a broken world. But if you face that next trial, that next crisis with the assurance of God's power, well, then you're already halfway to victory. And that brings us to the third application point. What memorial stones have you set up to help you remember the ways that God has worked in your life? Maybe you've kept a journal that you can go back and review from time to time to remind yourself, or maybe you have some article, a memento from a particular occasion, or possibly a picture that reminds you. I have a song that reminds me of a particular point where God really worked in my life. And now every time I hear that song, or even that group, I think of that time, and, and, and it reminds me. I would encourage you, set up some visible, tangible reminders of times where you know God has been at work. You know, as a church, we, we actually try to help you do that with a, a once-a-month tangible reminder of God's active power in your life. It's called communion. And each time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're reminded that at a certain point in time in your life, God came into your life. He washed away your sins. He gave you new life, eternal life, and now lives right inside of you. What a miracle that was and is. And we need to remember those things and, and other times that God has specifically been at work. What are you doing to help you remember? Because if you're not doing anything, you're setting yourself up to forget. And as I already mentioned, forgetting is the enemy of faith. If you want to have a strong, battle-ready faith, then set up some remembrance stones in your life to remind you of God's love and grace and mighty power on your behalf. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning again to just look into your word, to see who you are, what kind of God you are. We're so thankful that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, that we can count on your grace, your power, that we, you will lead us, you will direct us, you will show us the way to go. May we be faithful to follow. 
May we be strong in encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.